Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Education Channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Tom DeSena, from the Department of Communication, Journalism, and Public Relations at Oakland University. My guests today are Lydia Wilkes and Nate Kruder, the editors with Ryan Skinnell of Rhetoric and Guns. Guns hold a complex place in American culture. Over 30,000 Americans die each year from gun violence, and guns are intimately connected to issues of public health, as is evident whenever a mass shooting occurs. But guns also play an important role in many Americans' lives that is not reducible to violence and death as tools, sporting equipment, and identity markers. They are also central to debates about constitutional rights as seen in ongoing discussions about the Second Amendment, and they are a continuous source of legislative concern as apparent in annual ratings of gun-supporting legislators. Even as guns are wrapped up with other crucial areas of concern, they are also fundamentally a rhetorical concern. Guns and gun violence occupy a unique rhetorical space in the United States, one characterized by silent majorities like most gun owners, vocal minorities like the firearm industry and gun lobby, and a stalemate that fails to stem the flood of the death. How Americans talk, deliberate, and fight about guns is vital to how guns are marketed, used, and regulated. A better understanding of the rhetoric of guns and gun violence can help Americans make better arguments about them in the world. However, where guns are concerned, rhetorical studies is not terribly different from American culture more generally. Guns are ever-present and exercise powerful effects, but they are commonly talked about in oblique, unsystematic ways. Rhetoric in guns advances more direct, systematic engagement in the field and beyond by analyzing rhetoric about guns, guns in rhetoric, and guns as rhetoric, particularly as they relate to specific instances of guns and culture. The authors attempt to understand rhetoric's relationship to guns by analyzing rhetoric about guns and how they function in and as rhetoric related to specific instances in media coverage, political speech, marketing, and advertising. Original chapters from scholars in rhetorical studies, communication, education, and related fields elucidate how rhetoric is used to maintain and challenge the deadly status quo of gun violence in the United States and extend rhetorician's sustained interest in the field's relationship to violence, brutality, and atrocity. Lydia Wilkes is assistant professor of English at Auburn University. She studies intersections of rhetoric, violence, and writing in public discursive and material spaces. As a gun-owning hunter, she supports firearms regulations as a matter of public health and safety. Nate Kruder is Associate Professor of English and Director of First Year Writing at the University of Georgia. He has written a variety of articles on rhetoric in the U.S. intelligence community and the rhetorical canon of style. He is a gun-owning hunter and fisherman who believes that the rights afforded by the Second Amendment and sensible firearms regulation can be balanced. Lydia Wilkes and Nate Kruder, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Tom. So before we jump into the substance of the book, I think we need to take a moment uh, just to note that even in the context of this culture, we seem to have reached perhaps new lows of um, violence with the shootings that took place in Buffalo, Philadelphia, and Uvalde, Texas. And I also want to note that uh, tomorrow, students at Michigan high schools where where I'm located are marching in protest, um, instigated primarily by the shooting that happened uh, at Oxford down the street from us here at Oakland. Um, So on one level, this question seems almost painfully self-evident, but Um, What brings you both to the study of guns and rhetoric? Lydia? Uh, I got started on this project after the Newtown shooting because as a hunter and as a gun owner, I noticed a big gap in the way that rhetoricians were talking about guns. And I thought that we had something to bring to the table that I had not really seen uh, in the research literature to date. So I wanted to make this uh, opportunity available and Luckily, Nate and Ryan jumped on board, as did some fantastic authors. 
And we have a, a book here where we're trying to explicate some of the, the stalemate that is definitional at this point of uh, rhetoric and guns in the U.S., where we continue to have these mass shootings and there's continued um, outcry for common sense, as some of the uh, phrasing is used now, legislation that would prevent some of these atrocities. And yet nothing happens because the gun lobby is a very powerful force. So I wanted to get this project going because I thought rhetoricians had something to say. And I'm grateful that so many people uh, did have something to say and contributed to this volume. Nate, can I ask you? Same question. Um, I got into this accidentally. I I used to be a regular columnist for Inside Higher Ed. And after the Newtown shootings, I wrote a a column um, reflecting on that and reflecting on some legislation that was pending in North Carolina at the time that would allow students to, uh, college students, to bring guns uh, with proper permitting into the classrooms. And that. that column got picked up by um, by by very um, engaged uh, pro gun advocates and and became quite a source of stress in my life for for a while as um, I received threats. I, I um, had people suggesting that I should harm myself, and it was a really um, I'm really proud of the column, but it was a really bad experience. Um, kind of taking that uh, pressure from from that particular um, uh, constituency. And so I I really didn't pursue it after that. And then in 2018, I was at the Rhetoric Society of America conference and Lydia had already envisioned this project. She already had a CFP written and she was looking for for folks to work with and uh, mutual friend, uh, colleague, scholar, uh, Patricia Roberts Miller um, connected us and said, you know, you two might want to work together on this. And so I I saw Lydia's vision, which she just articulated. I saw the, the CFP that she had written. And I said, yeah, this is, I, I'm not sure this is going to be fun, but it seems really necessary. And, and, and Lydia's really on to something here. And so that's when I got on board for this particular project. So I guess, you know, that, that last thing you said that, you know, this, this project is <laughs> not particularly fun. I mean, I get, you know, you said both of you, I think to some degree speak to this is that you kind of get drawn into this topic rather than choose it. it it's almost as if it chooses you. I, I don't know if that's uh, the correct way of saying this, but um, but I, I get that sense that that people who get drawn to uh, the this kind of work are are pulled in more than they choose it. Yes, I completely agree with that. That's been my experience too. In fact, I uh, when I was. Preparing the CFP, I, I struggled for a little while because I thought, you know, um, is this something I really want to do? And I just felt like I, I had to do it. I felt compelled to do it because I thought that I was positioned appropriately to try to gather some folks together and present something that might um, contribute to the conversation. But, you know, it's, it's strange to have a volume out that on the one hand, I'm very proud of, but on the other hand, I wish didn't have to exist. So I've been grappling with that quite a bit lately. I think that's what I mean. That, that I think you, you phrased that beautifully because, at, at, you know, again, there, there's a lot to be proud of in this volume. It, it's, uh, it's erudite. It's interesting. It's obviously engaged in an important issue. But my God, I wish we didn't have to talk about this. Yes. But at the same time, you know, every time I find myself in that headspace, I remember, you know, I'm not suffering the trauma of the families. I'm not suffering... Um, any of the effects of direct violence. So at the same time, I, I pull back on that and I say, well, let's not whine about this too much because really it's it's a difficult headspace, but things are so much worse out there for so many other folks. So um, that's how I tend to kind of pull myself out of it and say, let's just keep going and let's keep trying to make a difference on this issue. And Nate, do you have a, do you have a similar sense? Yeah, very very much so. You know, I I really um, when we finished this volume, I kind of said, "This is great. I'm proud of it. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna move on to other things." And um, <laughs> with with Uvalde, um, I've been reflecting a lot this week. Um, I feel that I actually have to do a lot more on this topic right now. Um, and so I'm, I think I'm, I'm going to be reengaging, um, a lot more and I, I, it's not, it's not the thing I would choose to do, but I feel really called to do it. And I feel called, um, actually as a gun owner, not as a rhetorician. I think lots of rhetoricians could write clearly. Um, we have lots of great, um, contributions in this volume, but, 
Unfortunately, I think that, that one of the strategies that people use to prevent reform is to to try to discredit people who are not gun owners um, when these debates are taking place. And so I think it's incumbent upon people who understand guns, who, who have grown up around them, to propagate the arguments for sensible regulation. And so I feel as somebody who can speak the language of firearms, who understands them, who has lived a, a primarily rural um, life for most of his life, I feel um, it's my responsibility in that capacity to use my rhetorical expertise to try and, and tip the needle. And, and I know a lot of people are doing a lot of great work, but I, I happen to be a rhetorician. So this is where I'll contribute my work. But I really feel as somebody who's grown up around guns, who understands how they work, who understands the, the language around them, the identity issues. I think um, you mentioned identity in your opening, and I think that's that's the, the key issue I'm, I'm thinking more and more. So I'm, I'm re-engaging, but uh, reluctantly. <laughs> And to echo what Nate said, I also felt responsible as a gun owner uh, primarily and as a rhetorician secondarily to speak to this issue. And for the same reasons that Nate said, that uh, gun owners get maligned, but gun owners really need to be leading this issue. And and yet we're not largely. Um, We let the NRA talk for us, even though we don't actually exist in the NRA's category as gun owners who oppose their their stance. I also want to echo what Nate said about Uh, the Uvalde shooting pulling me back into this topic as well. I was working on some different work this summer and uh, found myself in the past couple days diving back into this topic um, and already have an article in the works. Um, Again, something I wish I didn't have to write, but but I really think that there is a lot more to be said here and that uh, gun owners and rhetoricians are well positioned to say it. I, I agree, and so let's let's let me let's use that as a jumping off point for uh, uh, my next question. Um, now, this is going to sound obvious, probably to the three of us, because we all have a background in rhetoric. Um, but let's investigate the sort of the what I take as the central premise of this collection, and and it may not be obvious to many of our readers. But how do you see guns as rhetorical? Uh, and, and let me start with you, Lydia. Mm. You know, there are so many ways that this question can be answered because guns can be seen in a discursive sense as rhetorical. They can be seen in a material sense as rhetorical. And the, the book takes up both of those. Um, I think I'm just going to pass this one off to Nate because I think Nate has a better answer than I do. Okay. Well, um, so I'll start building on that. Yeah, um, gu- guns are, are rhetorical in the in the material sense, right? And that they, um, they perform... I, I hesitate to say this, but it's true. They perform political work, right? Um, acts of violence are not always political, but but they are. And I would say that even, um, you know, something like this Uvalde shooting where we don't know the motive, we don't, um, you know, it's not a terrorist organization saying we, we want this, but it, it's a political act nonetheless. Um, and as issues of identity get tied to, to guns, and in particular to the AR-15, which seems to be the, the particular um, weapon where, where identity for, for a particular gun group is coalescing, um, these, these are where we have expertise, right? We understand how symbols function as rhetoricians. And so um, we have a particularly... Um, weighted um, problematic symbol in that, in that unlike um, another problematic, say the Confederate flag problematic symbol, um, this one can, can cause physical harm, right? So we know that, that the, the messages sent by the Confederate flag can, can cause certain people um, a certain type of harm, but I don't think that's comparable to, you know, a bullet. (laughs) Um, And so we have this thing that functions in these two ways simultaneously. And, and as a field, we haven't really applied our expertise um, to that. And so in some ways, this book is, is uh, as far as rhetorical theory goes, I don't think that, you know, we're, we're breaking like really new um, ground in terms of, of what rhetoricians have to say and, and deploy in terms of their own theory. What's new is we're deploying it against this particular um, artifact, both as a, a physical artifact and as, um, as Lydia says, as something discursive. Um, and so we're turning that rhetorical gaze, our, our discipline's expertise on this object, um, much more systematically and symbol, um, much more systematically than had been, than had been done 
um, previously. But for me, that word identity is really where this is starting to coalesce. Um, the arguments um, against regulation seem to be breaking more and more, focusing more and more around issues of identity. And so to me, that's becoming the, the linchpin for why resolution on this topic seems not possible right now and, and where we'll need to work in or if some sort of um, legislative compromise is going to be brokered. Although it's in, uh, and this is, you, and you, maybe you can speak to this experience. Um, I, I am not a gun owner. Um, I am not someone who has grown up around guns. Uh, so I had my first opportunity to fire a gun um, just a couple of months ago um, as, a, as a part of my son's involvement with the Boy Scouts. And we went to a shooting club where um, these very nice gentlemen uh, were, were explaining to all of us, uh, you know, the, the fathers got involved too, um, you know, how to fire a weapon and, and safety and, and the whole nine yards. Um, and then at one point said that uh, we, they asked us for money to, to pay for the ammunition that we were using for target practice. And they said, we used to get this uh, funded through the NRA, but they stopped uh, giving us money for this purpose. Um, and, and it seemed to me that, you know, you mentioned the NRA a minute ago, that the NRA, the, what my son was going through in, in this uh, in this instruction was probably what the NRA should be doing, um, but then apparently uh, is now no longer doing. Yeah, that's what the NRA used to do. Um, you know, the, the NRA of my grandfather's generation was a really different NRA than the one that we have today. It was to promote firearm safer, safety, um, to promote firearm skills, um, and something like a twenty two and the safety issues um, around that is very, very different than, than something like an AR-15. And so I do see that as the the older um, mission of the, the NRA. Um, a sort of related topic is that um, as a gun owner, it can be very difficult to um, to create separation between yourself and the NRA because the NRA is the primary insurer of shooting ranges. And so right. many shooting ranges will require um, membership or some sort of a, um, uh, you might be able to purchase like a one day membership type of thing. Um, but this makes it very difficult for gun owners who are not comfortable with the advocacy that, that they engage in um, to, to find places to shoot that they're not supporting that organization. And I, I should be clear, I don't think the, the NRA is kind of like the, the actually even the key to the problem anymore. I think that they're just really easy to talk about. About because we know we know their contributions to the problem, but I think even if the NRA were to suddenly, um, you know, say they lost some massive um, lawsuit and evaporated tomorrow, the, the issue that would not solve any of the issues um, that we're facing. Um, unfortunately, I don't think. But but these are fraught. You know, how do you be if you are a gun owner? How do you be a responsible one without? Also contributing to this this one organization that's that's driving uh, driving the debate in the wrong direction. It's really tough. And to pick up on what Nate said there, um, definitely this is the the older function of the NRA when its its purpose was to help uh, help men acquire better marksmanship skills, but. Uh, there's also a good deal of research on the NRA's formation that shows that um, one of the ways it was formed was around slave catching. So to go back to the issues of identity, it's true that that they've marketed themselves initially in this, um, you know, seemingly non-political or apolitical way. But in fact, we can find the the present issues we have with identity as they've cohered around white masculinity particularly Southern white masculinity, um, we can find that uh, back to the origins of the NRA. And there, there are several uh, great volumes on this that are referenced in the collection a bit. But I did want to note that um, that behind that, that seemingly, um, you know, normal veneer of firearm safety, there, there is also identity always being constituted. Oh, sure. Um, and, and, you know, just... The intersection with the Boy Scouts, too, is kind of interesting. Um, so before I put you both in in sort of the unenviable position of discussing some of the many excellent contributions to this volume, um, let's talk about your own uh, essays in in this uh, in this book. Nate, yours 
comes earlier in the work. So uh, let's talk a little bit about rhetorical velocity. Yeah. So what I'm trying to do in, in this essay is use um, velocity, literal um, velocity as a way of understanding how firearms are functioning in the public sphere. And um, velocity is, is, uh, has been a big uh, thing of interest for the gun industry in my lifetime in the sense of, as I argue in the essay, um, guns are constrained. You can only um, fit so much uh, powder into a shell. You can only put um, so large of a bullet into the shell. And so in order to improve performance, um, what, what, modern firearms manufacturers have have focused on is increasing the velocity, the trajectory with which the bullet um, leaves the firearm. Um, And this is um, true, especially for weapons um, like the AR-15, which are defined as high velocity weapons. And so I try to extend this this idea of velocity, which um, Jim Rodolfo and his co-author have previously talked about, although not in relation to firearms. And I, I try to ask, you know, are there other, if we think of velocity as a property of physics, are there other properties like mass um, that, that might explain the situation that we're in. And I think I come to the really uncomfortable conclusion that um, certain events have more, and now I am being figurative, um, have more mass than, than other events. And so, for example, um, Newtown has a lot of rhetorical mass because um children and, and violence towards children, uh, while we, we are um, traumatized by all violence, I think the trauma of, of such young, innocent people, um, it is weightier uh, rhetorically, um, culturally, than, than other types of violence towards adults. Um, and so that's why um, the, these certain propaganda machines have to snap into action, because the mass is such that... Um, people affected by this are actually in a position to, to get some change um, initiated. And this is why you see groups like Alex Jones trying to, to discredit the Newtown parents. I'm sure we will see um, similar efforts with, with Uvalde. But, um, you know, even uh, I'll even put it this way. You mentioned the three the three recent shootings um, and, and the one in Buffalo, um, as horrific as, as the Buffalo one was, and it was horrific and it was racially motivated and, and we know all of this, it's already out there, I'm sure more details will emerge. That event doesn't have the same mass culturally. It's not being talked about um, at length in our media in the same way that the Uvalde one was. Um, and so why is that? Is it because... Um, the, the Uvalde uh, event had more victims, 19 as opposed to 10. Is it because the Uvalde victims were younger? Um, they're, they're primarily elementary um, school instead of a, a variety of ages as we're in that supermarket. And you come to the, the really uncomfortable conclusion, I think, that we don't weigh violence against all people the same. In our culture, um, and so I think I think we are getting to this inflection point of how young and how um, sort of suburban, um, maybe suburban white, do victims need to be before we will will take action? Um, I think you know the while we haven't seen any tangible action yet, the the rhetoric of the need for reform is so much greater surrounding the Uvalde event than the Buffalo event that um, we have to dig into that. And so rhetorical mass, as I articulate it in this um, chapter, is a way to kind of understand that difference and understand how it's it's functioning rhetorically um, within um, not necessarily one person's conception of things, but in our sort of collective response. Uh, and Lydia, your contribution comes a little bit later, so uh, let's talk a little bit about the what you frame as the rhetorics of acquiescence and resistance. Yes, and uh, I, I end up building on Nate's idea of rhetorical mass as well, which I've been thinking about quite a bit lately in connection to Uvalde. So I argue that rather than assent or dissent to the presence of guns to overwhelming gun violence being the the sort of definitional of the debate about guns, it's really characterized by acquiescence or by a sense of giving in to the prevalence of gun violence as though it's it's kind of too big of a thing for us to confront 
or it requires too much time, too much energy. Um, and this relates back to Nate's chapter on mass because um, he talks about the fact that the NRA, for example, is extremely well organized and has a massive membership, and that helps them combine the mass of their membership with the speed and efficiency of their organization to create this incredible force, this rhetorical force that they exert on not only the gun debate, but on all of these laws that that mostly don't get enacted because, um, as we will see again, um, the package of modest reforms that the House has passed is going to fail in the Senate because um, the gun lobby is exceptionally well organized. And I agree with Nate that we're we're at a moment, it would seem, where the uh, the side for gun safety, as gun control has been recently reframed, is gaining mass. There is certainly a lot of attention focused on this issue. Um, I'm always, anytime, anytime there's attention focused on a mass shooting, as there was after Buffalo, I'm always watching for how quickly it's going to dissipate, because typically it dissipates quickly. And it did in that case. But with Uvalde, we're still talking about it a good deal later. And that gives me some degree of hope. However, um, I, I don't think the legislation will pass. Instead, I think the opportunities to accrue mass here um, come with gun owners. Um, and particularly, I thought Matthew McConaughey's speech at the White House, where he appeals to responsible gun ownership, uh, has a good deal of potential. But what needs to happen there to accrue sufficient mass is that um, he or somebody else needs to be willing to take more of a political stance than he's willing to take on that issue. And so um, even though I think he could be a really ideal figurehead to, to lead a movement, uh, it seems like he's a little reluctant to do that. So um, on the one hand, I am cheered by what's going on, by the fact that we're still talking about it, because acquiescence in part is fed by the fact that, that we have a very limited attention span as a culture. We tend to move from one thing to the next, like a hummingbird. And the fact that we're still talking about this is, is a good thing, but um, I am not holding my breath for action yet. I think that the, the protest you talked about, Tom, at Michigan, uh, in Michigan high schools, I think that the, the young people have a, um, the ball is clearly in their court. They are aware that this is an existential threat to them. And the more that they are willing to sustain their organization over time, the better. Um, I really hope that there are a lot of high school students who are going to be spending their summers organizing for mass walkouts in the fall, because I think that will grab attention and that will sustain attention. And that has the capacity to move the needle on this topic. I, I, I hope you're right. Um, is, but bef but I think we probably should. Uh, and again, now I'm going to put you in, in kind of a tough spot because I'm asking you to uh, to talk a little bit about some of the other contributions. And, and you have one that specifically discusses um, the the Parkland uh, movement and the idea of never again. So so should we uh, should we move on to that? Sure. In fact, that one is informing my research right now. That's Brad Serber's piece on uh, the last mass shooting and the notion that Parkland will never happen again and how this, this is ultimately not a very effective or helpful frame, unfortunately. Yeah. And, and, and so we get wrapped up in this. And again, you know, again, I, I agree with you that it's going to be the, you know, the children shall lead, I suppose, is, is the way to put it. Um, but at the same time, you know, uh, after the after the shooting here in, in Oxford, which, again, um, you know, one of my one of my speech students had a brother who was one of the victims um, and my my son, you know, driving him home from school and we pass by the, we pass not far from there, um, you know, <laughs> basically confronted me with the questions like, well, you know, what are you doing about this? Yeah. Like, you know what up, I mean? Like, like, yeah. like, you know, like, like kids can do so much, but, but <laughs> at some point, you know, they, 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 we, they still look to the adults in their lives and say, you know, <laughs> what are you doing? Yes, absolutely. Um, and one thing that, that troubles me a bit is that one thing we, we adults are doing is um, talking about the wrong solutions like arming teachers, but also talking, um, kind of relying on capitalism to solve this problem, 
So, for example, in in my chapter, I talk about the Wonder Hoodie, which is a, a form oh, of, God. Um, you know, not not actually that protective, but it's a form of body armor that people can purchase um, that comes in, you know, will will fit a six year old. And so we're at a point where we're we're more willing to use capitalism to try and solve problems with technology than we are to to push a public debate on this and to push politicians to be accountable to what the people want. So um, in the introduction, you talk about uh, the idea of stasis theory, and and I'd like to ask um, either one of you, I guess we can start with Nate, how are you using the idea of stasis theory, and, and how do you think that gun rhetorics can, can be framed by it? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked that, because that's exactly where my probably next phase of work will go. Um, basically, um, and I think I was probably the person... Um, most uh, interested in, in making sure that that got into the introduction. Um, I think that, that those who who want to stymie um, reform and regulation are brilliant manipulators uh, of stasis. And what I mean by that is um, it's generally understood, if I can be forgiven perhaps an, an oversimplification, but it's generally understood that if, if we are arguing different points – we're not going to come to resolution. And and stasis theory gives us a way of diagnosing and understanding are people arguing about the same thing. Um, and the those that, that oppose regulation are happy with the status quo because the status quo means that they can continue to purchase the firearms they want in the ways that they want with the lack of oversight that they want. So they don't have to get anything done. They just have to prevent things from getting done. And so when uh, reform comes up, they're really skilled both as individuals in conversation and as lobbyists and, and more organized advocacy groups at shifting stasis, right? So as soon as you start to talk about um, banning assault weapons, which is a, a policy argument, they'll begin to argue over the definition of what constitutes an assault weapon. Um, and so as soon as you then um, address the, you know, what is an assault weapon? What isn't? What is it that you're referring? Then they're talking about um, a different value, which is the sort of abstracted values that they see in the Second Amendment. And this just in perpetuity. And so all they do is destabilize the debate. Um, and But that means that we're never actually um, following an argument, um, whether it's you know, two people talking or whether it's a legislative body deliberating, we're never following an argument through to its end. And so I think that this sort of um, stasis whack-a-mole, you could call it, um, that these groups play is, is just um, maddeningly effective at preserving the status quo. And so I think we're going to need um, strategies for, for how to how to pin people in a stasis um, so that we can proceed through it to where we might make some collective decisions about about policy. So I think that this is really um, where I'll be focusing my future work. And I think it's where um, we really need to understand the skill um, with which um, both individuals and, and groups have done this. And, and I should say, um, I think that um, the those who are against regulation do a really good job of sort of disseminating um, how to argue um, to, to people um, who, who are sympathetic towards them. So this becomes a sort of like um, it's not it's it's top down, but it be, it comes it, it goes so thoroughly through that community that it, it sounds and feels grassroots. Um, and so um, even if somebody is not versed in, you know, how to lobby and how to argue, simply being in the presence of these arguments a lot makes them really skilled at, at shifting stasis when an individual um, confronts them with counter arguments. And that's certainly been my both my experience as an individual and my observation as a scholar. Lydia, do you have anything to add to that? Uh, no, I think that Nate's covered that really well. Okay. Um, so again, there, there are a lot of, uh, you've got some really wonderful essays in, in this, in this, uh, volume. Um, are there any in particular that, that you want to raise in the context of, uh, what we've been talking about so far? Yeah. I suppose we should, should, go ahead. Well, Nate, since you brought up identity, um, I think it's, it's worth talking about, uh, Patricia Roberts Miller's essay, which leads the volume, where she argues that 
Um, what tends to happen in the gun debate is that we will start out arguing policy and um, the NRA in particular will shift this um, to identity, to the issue of identity. So they'll make it about uh, a good guy with a gun rather than about uh, red flag laws. And she argues that you cannot debate policy in this way because you're not actually debating policy, you're debating identity. And she sees this within uh, the structure of the framework of demagoguery where it's reduced to both sides or to two sides um, and to us versus them and in groups and out groups fighting against each other for a sense of moral superiority. And this gets us nowhere. So I think this is a really important opening chapter because she gives us a way to understand um, the fact that uh, the NRA, for example, doesn't admit the category that she's in, where she is both a gun owner by virtue of common law and someone who opposes the NRA's stances. So I think that's a really brilliant chapter that starts the book off because it shows us how, um, I wouldn't say this is a shift of stasis necessarily, but it shows us how the conversation is repeatedly shifted to different terms that get us away from policy argumentation. And hence, things don't get resolved. We, we remain deadlocked because we're just talking about identity. So I think that's one that, um, that I, I think about a lot and that I use in my work. And uh, so I definitely think I wanted to start there. Good. So I, I guess I have I – maybe, maybe that's a question that I can ask you both. So as I said before, I, I am not a gun owner. I, I did not grow up around guns. Um, <laughs> it, it, and this is kind of interesting in regards to uh, one of the contributions. The, my, my, I grew up in Detroit. And my father bought a shotgun. Um, yeah, <laughs> probably shouldn't tell this story. Um, after the 1967 riots in the city, and 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 kept it for the next 30 years as kind of a completely embarrassing symbol for himself. Um, he didn't actually get rid of it until much much later. Um, so, but having said that, I have known a good many gun owners, uh, hunters and, and people who collect and have found all of them to be sort of that, you know, I'm assuming like you guys, you know, the responsible gun owner, right? Like, like everyone that I know who owns guns, I think is a, is a good person and, and I'm sort of completely comfortable with them owning guns. So how, if that's the majority, and I believe that it is, are we in this sort of position where a minority is leading the discourse? I have a couple answers, and I'm going to try and um, answer first by rehabilitating your father for you in my answer. Um, uh, So so let's consider, you know, what what prompted that. I imagine that those events, whatever, you know, we know what was causing them, but whatever was causing them and however well or, or not well understood that was at the time, it must have been really scary. Um, and and so um, guns provide, at times, they do provide control. You know, if you are in control of your firearm, you can you can shoot an animal at 300 yards um, if you're skilled. Um, but in that sort of situation, I think what a gun provides is is an illusion of control. And so I imagine that perhaps a person who had experienced that was feeling helpless. And, and in our culture with those things available, that was probably an attempt to kind of feel in control of his safety, of his, his family's safety. And so that's not a that's not a difficult impulse to understand, right? Um, and I think um, particularly in our culture, um, because guns are so much more present in our culture than in, in many other Western cultures, um, it sort of makes sense that a person would gravitate towards that as an attempt to feel control. So you, you come into today and we're in a period of um, climate instability, as one of our chapters touches on, we're obviously in a period of um, political instability. I would say we're in a period of of racial instability. And there is a constituency that sees um, guns, I would say, much more vociferously than perhaps the the reluctance with which your your father might have purchased that shotgun. But they see guns as their um, insurance, 
against, and I, I mean that quite literally, um, they see them as their insurance against all of the instabilities um, that they see around them. And that's why they're so adamant, right? They, they genuinely believe in, in many cases that, that the gun is going to be the last thing that kind of prevents them to, to falling into the morass of, of chaos that they think they see around them. And so... Um, and not without good reason. Yeah, yeah, right? Like, like, yeah, we do have political instability. We do have racial problems. We do have all these social effects um, from, from economic disparity and and uh, um, racial tension, like those those things that they see are real. Um, I think what's an illusion is is that guns would would solve any of those problems for them. Um, you know, and I, I'll even put it. This may be a little too dark, but you know, I, I know both types of gun owners. I know a lot that I think are responsible, and I know some that that frankly scare me. Um, and, 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 and of the ones that scare me, they tend to be the, the, you know, the hoarder type almost, right? Like they don't just need a gun. They need a lot of guns and they need a lot of ammunition. And futilely, sometimes I'll try to, to argue with these folks who are in some cases, um, friends, some cases acquaintances, um, and, and they'll try to advocate like why I should be doing the same thing. And, and, and my point to them is like, there's no, there's no reason to have 5,000 rounds of, of ammunition. Um, because if you need 5,000 rounds of ammunition, you're going to die anyway, right? Like there's, there's no situation where you need 5,000 rounds of ammunition and you're actually going to be able to shoot your way out of it. And even if you can, what's your quality of life going to be? Um, so I think that this is really a fantasy, um, of control, a fantasy of, being able to defend themselves against the the instabilities we see, which are only going to be solved collectively, are only going to be solved by groups of people cooperating, not by individuals taking, you know, a, a courageous stand against whatever they perceive to be those threats. Yeah, it, Ira Allen's uh, essay in in your volume uh, speaks to this issue. Very much so. Yes. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because he it, it sort of it, it it kind of balances on those two extremes where you you know the obviously he's not advocating for hoarding and he's talking about a shotgun and and he actually frames it as a non defensive weapon, um, it, because you know as you just said if if we're in a situation where you you need that much ammunition, you know what are you really defending at that point? And and then also for some of us, you know there there's kind of an, an apocalyptic sense to all of that as well, right? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And um, I, I think for a lot of the the most extreme, a, a very strong and a very explicit apocalyptic apocalyptic sense. You know, look at the quote unquote prepper movement um, that that is that is come forth in the past 10 or 15 years. And um, sim- similarly, I think, uh, yeah, I, I think that, that there's, so I, I was hesitating whether I wanted to actually say this or not. I, I mean, you have to bring in, as uh, some of our chapters do, um, the evangelical movement, right? Which I think um, there is a vein of theology um, that's prominent in in the evangelical moment that, that sees um, bad things as good because these are indications of of the rapture, um, and so I think that there I certainly couldn't paint all um, opponents of of gun reform as being in this category, but there are a lot of them who who have a theological kind of faith that um, all these bad things are, are actually a sign that it's going to break down and and that. Um, religious resolution is, is getting really close. Um, and so I think we don't talk enough about how um, religion and guns are, are becoming linked um, as identity markers for, for some Americans. Yeah, that, uh, I think that's, I think that's absolutely true. Um, I guess the, the one last point and in, in, in regards to Alan's piece that I just, uh, I just want to throw this out. Um, one of the subtexts that runs throughout this entire book, and and even I think um, the discussion that we're having right now, is the way that guns are racialized. Right? That yeah. that you know, as as you mentioned uh, a minute ago, Nate. You know, we're talking about Uvalde. We're not talking about Buffalo. Um, and while at one level, you know, that could be because of numbers, and it can be because of age. I think we can't also escape the fact that it's 
because of the color of the skin of the, of the victims in Buffalo. Um, there's another subtext, though, that I that I notice, especially in in Alan's piece, which is that for some folks, um, you know, and, and again, this is the that as you said, the quote unquote prepper movement, and and that sort of those apocalyptic rhetorics, um, like. I, I have type one diabetes, right? And so, if if the apocalypse happens, I ain't gonna be able to shoot my way out of anything. Um, if, if we come to a situation where I have to start hunting squirrels for food, my guess is that I'm not going to be able to acquire the insulin that I need to live in order to eat that squirrel. Um, and so, for a lot of us, you know, we're sort of devoted to a collective um, response to whatever exigencies we face and and, an individualized one just ain't going to fly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And um, one thing that is is an interesting shift right now in dynamics of gun ownership, and I think this, this speaks back to the the, the looming sense of apocalypse that uh, even if you're not in an evangelical community, I think is is somewhat pervasive um, uh, among just the general population. Um, and what's happened since 2020 is that uh, there are a lot of new gun owners who don't fall into the white male category that gets discussed prominently in the book as a category of, of race and gender. I think especially of Lisa Corrigan's chapter on this, uh, where she explicates the gun as uh, securing whiteness as property. But what's happened is that white women and people of color have started buying guns in significant numbers since 2020. There's a shift in, in gun ownership happening right now. And a future project for me will be to go to the gun ranges and um, find some people to interview. And I think that that uh, what I'm going to find is some version of what Nate already said, which is that guns offer this illusion of security. And I think that that's what, what white women and people of color are starting to purchase now, which the NRA loves. They've been trying to like they've been trying to get white women on board for at least two decades, and pink accents on guns really didn't do it. But um, but you know maybe maybe these doomsday preppers constitute enough of a threat for women, uh, white women and people of color to, to think that well maybe I should arm myself too. And uh, anytime I, I talk with people about this. Um, I get a person of color or a, a white woman or a woman of color who says to me, hey, I just bought a gun for the first time, and now I'm going to the range. And so um, I'm really concerned for these folks because uh, everything in our book says that uh, they're putting themselves at risk because if they're happening, if they're going to be carrying at all, especially in the open carry, um, only some bodies are permitted to carry firearms in this country and other bodies are not permitted to carry firearms and are at risk if they do so, as we saw with with the endless litany of deaths of Black people, um, including Black children. So like I think of Tamira Rice uh, in particular. And so um, so I'm really worried about this, but at the same time, it, it sort of um, shows that uh, what Nate was saying about purchasing uh, a fantasy of security um, and I think what Ira's talking about in his chapter with, with this apocalyptic doom shrouding us, um, I, I'm worried that people are buying more and more into the individual fantasy of security and less and less, or I'm not seeing the evidence that people are buying into collective action, into solidarity, coalition, and mass movements, because I agree this is not something that can be solved individually. And again, right, the, the, as you said earlier, the, you know, buying the gun is, is the capitalist solution, right? It's like, if I, if I want to feel safe, then, you know, well, I, well, I go buy something or, and, um, you know, whether it's the, the armored hoodie or, or, or even the gun. Um, and, it, you know, again, it's interesting, the, the semester that I had the, the student whose brother was one of the victims at Oxford, um, that the round of speeches where he, 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 had, he couldn't come in to do his persuasive speech, right? And it was like, you know, you, you're probably familiar with this idea. And, um, and, and during that very round, uh, a young woman got up and gave a speech on gun ownership as a feminist issue advocating that you know um she was she she owned a gun um because she was a feminist 
And there's something to be said for that uh, because domestic yeah. violence is a significant category that overwhelmingly affects women. But um, I, I would want to hear more of that argument <laughs> to hear how it is. How, uh, what kind of feminism is it being ensconced in? <laughs> uh, well, I'm not sure that she was <laughs> distinguishing yeah. between types of feminism. Jo- um, Jonathan Rausch, 20 years ago in, in Salon.com, uh, advocated something similar for the gay community. And he tried to found an oh. organization called Pink Pistols. And and what his argument was, was that um, uh, gay folks are, are, are subject to abuse, to, to real violence, and they should arm themselves and be very vocal in doing so and very visible in doing so. And I used to use that article a lot with classes because what I found is it created a chiasmus between how how much are your pro-gay rights or anti-gay rights and your pro-gun versus anti-gun, how much are those in tension? <laughs> so do, do your pro-gun sentiments um, outweigh your anti-gay sentiments or do your anti-gun um, sentiments outweigh your you know, um, belief that this community should be able to protect itself. I don't use it anymore because, um, students find, um, at least my students find, find gay rights so uncontroversial. So it doesn't create that, that tension anymore. But, but, um, there have been movements, um, trying to argue for, for, you know, marginalized groups, vulnerable groups, um, to arm themselves and to do so visibly. But I, I share, um, Lydia's fear that does that just make it easier than for, for other people to then victimize these groups? Yeah. So um, let's talk a little bit about, uh, since we're living through, again, this, uh, you know, uh, this heightened moment about uh, national media coverage of, um, and you know, we should also point out, right, we, we're focusing a lot as, as inevitably you do on these mass shooting events, but of those 30,000 deaths per year, the mass shootings are a relatively small fraction, right? That's right, yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the the about national news coverage. Of you have a chapter devoted to this as well. Yeah, you want to go ahead, uh, uh, Lydia? Sure, Lydia. Um, hmm. I I don't I didn't get to reread that chapter, so I don't have it fresh in my mind. Um, and what I have to say about national media coverage is is mostly a lot of um, angry emojis. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, the author the author takes it up as as uh, as the way that the national news coverage sort of buries the idea of white supremacy. Yeah, I'll take that up. Um, so so I think. So, so I, 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 I agree. I find the, the argument of that chapter compelling, but um, I also don't know what, I don't know what we expect of the media, right? So like right now, um, people are saying, well, well, maybe it's like Emmett Till and the media needs to, to show this stuff. Um, what a, what a fraught position to be in as a media person, right? Do we, do we traumatize the public? Do we provide, um, sort of, uh, bait to the, that really small percentage of, of people who would, um, get a rise out of, out of seeing something so graphic. I don't know how the media is supposed to play this. And even like with the Buffalo example, we were just talking about it getting knocked out of the news. Well, what did it get knocked out by? It got knocked out by Uvalde, right? So like, is that the media paying less attention to, to racial violence in that case, which it clearly was, or is it just, you know, that we've reached the level of absurdity where we don't even have time to, to give that incident its due diligence and due investigation before the next more tragic thing happens. I, 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 I acknowledge that, that um, I think we do obscure nationally um, the, the role of race in these issues, but I also don't know, you know, what is, what are we supposed to do? Not cover um, Uvalde. I don't know how the media kind of um, balances these issues and, uh, I think it's it's a really unenviable position that they're in as well. Yeah, and I, I think too that uh, I mean, given the consolidation of media outlets into to corporations, there there isn't much motive there to uh, try to call out white supremacy or to do anything that might 
uh, upset uh, and already, you know, tumultuous um, state with regard to race relations in the U.S. So I, I think it's it's understandable why they would do that. I don't think it's excusable, but I do think that um, that there are there are reasons for that. And and it for me largely has to go, but goes back to the the profit motive for corporate media, which uh, I know puts folks who who study journalism and do journalism in an extremely difficult place. Um, in addition to the difficult place that Nate already described. Yeah. So let's um, maybe talk about, and, and these are sort of, I think, two related themes, the the campus carry movement and then um, uh, the chapter on the activism gap. Um, I, I know, I, you know, I've, I've done another one, uh, another interview on, on folks who studied uh, campus carry legislation. Um, I know it's becoming increasingly prevalent around the country. Um, Nate, apparently you got sort of uh, wrapped up in it. So um, do we want to talk about it? Sure. Yeah. And I, I think um, we should point out that, that Kendall um, Gertie's chapter is about that campus carry academic freedom and, and rhetorical sensitivity. Um, yeah. As I, as I said early in the interview, that's, that's how I, um, that's how my gun ownership and my scholarly interests um, intersected to where I, I talked about this for the first time. Um, you know, as a gun owner, I clearly believe that people should be able to own guns. Um, that's that's um, non-controversial to me. Um, I am particularly scared of um, young folks in the particular environment of, of a campus um, carrying weapons, even though I understand that, that these laws um, require them to be permitted and, and these sorts of things. Um, first of all, permitting doesn't mean much. It means that people take um, perhaps a half day safety course. Um, it doesn't um, doesn't guarantee that they're a, a skilled or, or even terribly responsible um, owner and user of that gun. And so um, the permitting process doesn't doesn't give me confidence that somebody would be um, really trustworthy with that weapon. And then, you know, just having taught college now for, for almost 18 years, I just see that, that um, and increasingly over those 18 years, our students are really stressed out. Um, and so what happens when, when guns are present in that, in that environment, you mentioned, you know, that mass shootings are not the majority of gun violence. Um, suicide is really prevalent in terms of the, the numbers of um, gun deaths that we have in this, this country. So what happens when um, really stressed out students have um, a firearm, you know, in their living quarters, um, on their person in a building, you know, where they have access to it at a moment of, of acute stress or their roommate maybe can access their weapon in a moment of acute stress. Um, and I think that college students are really at the peak of sort of um, life stress combining with their, you know, not quite fully developed adult minds, right? Like we know um, empirically that the human mind is not done developing at age 18. And so what happens when you put in all of these grade stressors and these away from home stressors and these financial stressors? Because so many of our, our students are financially stressed and, and social stressors and, um, you know, experimentation with substances for the first time. And this is the population that we're, we're sort of trying to um, – Arm. Arm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the only way to put it, right? Like it just doesn't make sense um, from, from, from any perspective, unless your objective is to, um, to propagate a particular view of guns and um, perhaps to make the people teaching those students feel a little defensive. Um, there's, there are instances of people, you know, the quote unquote, good guy with a gun preventing tragedy. But, um, if you talk to campus police, they're terrified of this scenario, how, how they say, how will we, um, differentiate between the active shooter and the, the good Samaritan student, right? They, they won't, they'll shoot them all. Um, right. And, and so campus police are terrified by this prospect. Um, they generally uh, oppose it. And, um, you know, I'll say also as somebody who's worked with with veterans a lot and, and was a, a former intelligence analyst where we had a, a shooting range in the building, it takes a hell of a lot of training and hell of a lot of skill 
to be able to use a firearm effectively in a stressful situation. And so, you know, the idea that a good guy with a gun, whether they're a college student or in another context, is going to be able to to save the day. I'm not saying it never happens, but I'm saying the vast majority of the time it doesn't because um, people freeze People um, act excuse me, recklessly, where maybe they would injure somebody else rather than the the uh, culprit in that situation. And so I I just see it as uh, I see it more as an act of legislative intimidation than a genuine effort to help students to keep themselves safe. Yes, certainly, campus carry uh, has been promulgated primarily by Turning Point USA as a, a overtly political. Um, act. And they, they are the organization that tends to spearhead campus carry uh, from one state to the next. And then um, going back to Nate's point about campus police not being able to distinguish between an active shooter and a good Samaritan, uh, there was at least one instance of a shooting at a community college in Oregon some years ago where yeah. a student was armed and decided not to intervene because he knew that there was no way for the police to distinguish him from um, the perpetrator. So even even in that situation, that person who I think was being a very responsible gun owner made the choice to not intervene because he recognized the danger there. So um, I wanted to just point out that this is a strongly politically motivated thing and also that uh, to, just to underscore Nate's point about the incredible difficulty that this poses for uh, a vulnerable uh, population that's in transition and, and also for law enforcement personnel. Yeah. Uh, so as, as we wrap up today, uh, I think we've probably already talked about this, but I'll just give you a little short opportunity here uh, to let us know what you're working on next. Uh, Nate? Yeah, so um, I've got a couple irons in the fire not related to this, but as, as relates to, to guns, um, I'm going to be pursuing this this issue of stasis and, and how um, organized um, lobbying groups, how they intentionally shift stasis in public policy debate. Um, so, so that's really going to be the focus um, for me. I'm also interested um, in the identity issue. I do think um, unless we can address the identity concerns that, that lead people to own, you know, um, 20 AR-15s, for example. Um, unless we can address um, those identity concerns, um, I don't see much prospect for progress here. And I'm not sure um, what that means <laughs> to address um, those identity concerns yet. All I know is that, um, and there's some really recent work that's um, come out in the, in the popular press um, about um, there was a guy um, in the Washington Post just just recently, um, former um, former um, gun industry guy Ryan um, Bus or Bussy, it's B U S S E, um, and he's really talking about how how guns are an identity marker and that this is the reason that, that people are so reluctant to give them up. And I, I think he's spot on. And so you know how do we you know um, how do we address that when somebody sees a gun as an identity marker in the same way that we might see our religion or we might see our ethnicity or our, our cultural heritage? Um, it makes it seem to me that those people might not be open to persuasion. Um, and so then if, if people aren't open to persuasion, how, how, how do we proceed? Yeah, Ryan Bussey has a, uh, which I think is how you say his name, has a, a book out too, yeah, about uh, – his uh, sort of uh, industry insider. It's not a tell-all, but it, it sort of goes in that direction. Oh, and and it's the I heard an interview with him. Yeah, it's it's the um, I I can't recall there maybe there has been a precedent, but I can't recall one for uh, someone speaking out in this way. Um, yeah, no. So I, I like to see that. And in terms of the work I'm working on right now, uh, I'm building on some work that Craig Reed has done. Uh, he has a a piece that was published in 2018 called "Our Tears Are Not Enough." That's about the warrant of the dead. Um, and that, that just says that since they died, we should do X, where X can be anything. And he argues in that piece that the warrant of the dead is not a very effective way of motivating political action. Um, so I'm picking up on that. And the piece I'm working on right now is called Our Deaths Are Not Enough, because we're at a point where you know people say, well, how many more children have to die? And the answer is that there's not a number, because if if the deaths of young young people were going to motivate political action, that would have already happened. 
Um, Sandy Hook was the moment for that. And uh, while this is a similar moment, it doesn't have, I think, the same level of urgency and shock. And so uh, what I'm arguing is that uh, the warrant of the dead of the dead is it gets used, but I think it's completely ineffective uh, to motivate rhetorical action. And instead, I'm, I'm picking up on Nate's discussion of rhetorical mass and rhetorical force and looking at uh, mass movements and how people have protested these issues in the past. Um, I am particularly um, sort of cheered by the example of Standing Rock, where they they held out a, a very long protest, and the fact that um, private security was turned on them shows that they were they were ruffling some feathers. So, um, so I think that that mass action is one of the solutions going forward, and that's what I'm going to be working on next. Well, we'll look forward to it. Lydia Wilkes and Nate Kruder, thank you for your time today. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having us, Tom. Sure. Once again, my guests today have been Lydia Wilkes and Nate Kruder, the editors with Ryan Skinnell of Rhetoric and Guns from Utah State University Press. My name is Tom DeSena, and you are listening to the New Books Network. <laughs>